Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Kiana Aran. She's an assistant professor, uh, part of medical diagnostics and therapeutics at the Keck Graduate Institute. And we're going to talk about um, CRISPR on a chip. I hope I described it properly, but I'm going to ask her about that. So, uh, Kiana, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. And um, it's CRISPR chip. We call it CRISPR chip to just make it more fun. Well, very good. Uh, tell me about your research, please. Sure. Sounds great. I'm actually an associate professor now at Keck Graduate Institute, and I'm also the CSO of uh, Kadia Bio, the, uh, a company that um, I am a part of as uh, a way to translate uh, some of my research into, into commercial products, which I'll talk about. So I'm an electrical engineer by training who is fascinated about biology. I always was. And um, I found my passion when I started doing PhD and how to combine uh, biology with um, with electronics. So the main research theme in my lab is to use modern electronic to understand biology or to uh, devise um, uh, tools that can measure biological interactions. So biology is super, super complex. It's systems within systems that they work together to determine, you know, our reality, our health, our diet, our physical traits, our diseases. And, uh, but, but also other aspects that we may not uh, think about, such as cosmetic and, and health of our pets and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, for years, you know, the thought was that it would be really great if the same way that we convert streams of real-time data to digital information using the modern gadget that we have, like computers, phone, and other gadgets, can we actually convert biological data to, to, do, to digital information? And this was a field that I got really interested in. And, uh, you know, it was a great way for me to connect my passion with my, with my technical uh, skills. Yeah, so this, this basically is the theme, the theme of uh, my research. And, and uh, 
to just give you a little history about about what is it that that I'm doing in the lab and what is this digital component that I'm talking about? I I want to briefly talk to you about you know what is the major component in the the majority of the digital gadget that we use today and how are we converting those major components to something that can really connect with biology? Uh, when you think about all of the gadgets that you work today, like your phone, your computers, there is a major element in all of these devices. It's called transistors. Uh, transistor was one of the major technological advances of the you know of our centuries where where it was also a novel uh, winning discovery and invention so the transistors were invented around 1950s to address a specific you know problem back in the days all the communication used to happen using vacuum tubes you know um i don't know if you still remember but i remember my grandfather using to have you know vacuum tube based radios right I've seen them, yeah. I've seen them. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the communication, long distance communication, used to be done by by vacuum tube. When 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 AT and T, you know, uh, commissioned Bell Lab to actually design something that can operate better than vacuum tubes, that we can have, you know, long distance um, communications in a more effective way. So this is where uh, William Shockley and his colleagues started working on a, on using a new material that can replace vacuum tubes. And then you know they 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 discovered or they invented transistors by replacing you know by using a novel material at the time silicon and germanium to be able to make transistors just to address that that um, telecommunication issues that they have. They never thought about you know the majority of the applications that we are using transistors for today and. You know, those applications were, were never thought about at the, at the time. It was a change of material, you know, to silicon and germanium that enabled us to have faster switches, faster transistors. And, and uh, you know, later on, we started using them in computers, you know, in, in, and nowadays you can see them in basically any electronic gadget that you see. So silicon was great and switching to that material uh, enabled us to basically do that. But silicon has limitations. You know, when we think about, Okay, can I can we use transistors to connect with biology now? Can we expand the application of these transistors? Can we actually generate the, the next generation of these transistors that can enable us to connect to biology? Then silicon becomes a limiting factor. So another part of my research has been really trying to find you know materials that can replace replace uh, silicon. And what we really do in my lab and in a larger scale in the companies I'm involved at, really using material that can replace silicon that are able to connect with biology without impacting biology. So we use the 2D material graphene, another Nobel Prize winning uh, technology. That is, uh, it's a 2D material made of carbon molecule, can talk with biology without impacting it. And um, it's much faster because biological events happen so fast at the speeds that, you know, it's it's really difficult well, to capture. What, what are some of the, the timeframes, you know, for example, is it like picoseconds or? Yes. Fast? Exactly. So, so some of these biological events are happening in picoseconds, right? And and those things are really hard to capture, you know, with optics. And this is another major challenge because the status quo today in uh, in measuring biological event, it's 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 using optics, you know. And you know, as as you you probably you know are familiar with that optical instrument or bulky or are difficult. You always have to have a label that we can optically detect. And uh, and this is because you know optical wavelengths are limited 
because they they in order to be able to pass through small scale you know biologic biology you need to have you know much smaller wavelength to be able to detect those and, and optics is limited in that context so that's why when you when you're doing let's say all of these you know optical systems that we have they all require amplification because you really have to to make make biology bigger and make the signal bigger in order for you to be able to observe it with, with optics and and this is this is where we are in understanding modern biology today and you know there has been not much focus on on really you know utilizing the, the highest speed and um, the highest speed and modern electronics to really connect with biology. So this is what we're doing. We're, we're combining, we're changing the material from silicon to something that can, it's faster than silicon. It can interact with biology in a much friendlier way. And we're trying to really capture this biological event in real time, you know, and, and, uh, and this is basically what has been enabled uh, enabled uh, you know me and my team to to be able to connect with biology and and read those read those biological signal and uh, crispr chip is one one of those examples where we where we were fascinated about crispr as a as a robot as a tool that can unzip the double stranded dna search through the dna find this target molecule to, uh, its target sequence and then cut it and then we can do editing is anyone looking at the possible downstream effects, you know, epigenetic change, microbiome change, you know, et cetera? I mean, also how genes are transcribed, uh, you know, that affects. I mean, I know that now it's possible to target and cut and insert, et cetera, into the genome, but I would think there's a whole host of downstream effects that I don't know if anyone's looking at. Yeah, very good question. Like, you know, before even moving to CRISPR, explaining CRISPR to you guys. So our platform is not only limited to like CRISPR. We can really look at, you know, interaction of let's say rna binding proteins right because those is uh, those uh, events are are also not you know clearly understood we know these things from the phenotypic result that we see from these events right it's really hard to understand why for example protein a is binding to this rna but you know but protein b is not binding why this rna with a single point mutation can have such a you know a strong impact on the protein machinery Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But then RNAB, which has, you know, other mutation does not have that impact, right? So those are not really understood. And, and one of the things that we're trying to do, you know, with our platform is, is to really look at, can we actually see what are the proteins that are binding to this RNA? Let's, let's create some sort of a mutation and see how that mutation is impacting this uh, this binding and and can we can we create some sort of a, a stream data a stream of data that can really help us understand this phenomenon and and uh, there is no tool that can take us to this nanoscale level and help us understand those at that scale so so this is something that it's also possible using using fast speed electronic which we are trying to take advantage of yeah, I just wonder if anyone's studying, again, the potential downstream effects. I mean, I know that I guess there's a myriad of effects, but is anyone looking at those specific? 
So, so again, uh, uh, one of the things that it's also, it's also lacking and we're trying, we are, our company is trying to look at those is that, you know, when you look at epigenetic, genetic changes, you know, you want to also look at the, the phenotypic result, you know, proteomics and then what other impacts that it has. So it really, you want to look at all the omics at the same time and have, have large volume of data so you can, uh, you know, you can allow computers and, and machine learning algorithm to analyze those. If this, this sort of mutation is happening, how it's, how it's going to impact, you know, the protein generation. So our platform that we have created right now, you know, it's a multi-omics platform, which we can, we, we can measure, we can measure RNA binding, we can measure DNA binding, we can, we can measure, you know, protein-protein interaction. And the goal is really have all of those things in, in one system or have one platform that can measure all of those uh, signal at the same time and create correlations between them. And it's not only, you know, between different type of omics, you know, when you even look at three, four different type of proteins together, the relationship and how those proteins and their concentration goes up and down, you know, it's really, really important. We have no tools that can look at all of this thing at the same time. Uh, I'll give you another example, you know, IL-6, for example, is a molecule that is implemented, a cytokine that is implemented in many diseases. It's also implemented in when we exercise or when we change diet, right? But the relationship that this cytokines, the concentration of this cytokine plays with other cytokines like TNF-alpha or other type of cytokines and how this concentration, they go up and down together can define, there's a lot of studies that show that it can define if this elevation of IL-6 is a result of infectious disease, is if it's a result of exercise. Exercise. Imagine having a tool that can monitor all of these things at the same time in a longitudinal manner. Then this is a whole new game because then you can look at the interplay between this biological molecule and understand what impacts it could have. When you say CRISPR in a chip, I mean, is that just the, the omics analysis? Is that what you mean? Or what does CRISPR in a chip mean? So CRISPR chip basically utilizes the function of CRISPR as a technology. What does that mean? One of the things that CRISPR does, it can unzip the double-stranded DNA find this target sequence precisely in the DNA and then and then cuts the, the double-stranded DNA and then you can do editing, right? What I was fascinated with back when I was at Berkeley, I looked at this as a robot and I was like, wow, what if we can monitor the function of the CRISPR as it does its search function? And can we actually use that to identify and search for a specific DNA in our sequence, basically as a, as a genotyping uh, tool? And the whole goal was that if, if CRISPR can do that in a cell, can it do that on a chip? And can we actually eliminate the need for amplification if we have a system that can precisely monitor the function of CRISPR chip? So CRISPR chip is basically a genotyping tool where you can where you can detect your target DNA without the need for amplification. So you put your you just take your your genetic material, you put it on the chip, and our chips are uh, uh, decorated with the, with CRISPR, and then CRISPR can can do whatever it does in 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 the cells. It looks for a target, bind to it, and then once that binding happens, our chip can detect it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And we have been able to detect multiple different diseases uh, using the technology. We have been able to detect sickle cell disease, ALS disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, without even needing to, to amplify the, gene, the genome and directly detect the sequence of interest. So this is what, what CRISPR chip is as a gene search engine, you know, we, can, we can call it, where, where we actually eliminated the need for, for amplification for some diseases, mostly genetic diseases so far, and we're, we're expanding it for, another, for other applications as we speak. Why don't you need to 
when you say amplified, you need to have like what many thousands or millions of instances of CRISPR in order for it to work. Is that what you mean by amplification? Yes. So, so not CRISPR, but the, your target. So the main way that, that DNA and sequences are detected today, even when you're using next-gen sequencing or other type of sequencing technology, you usually know what target you're looking for. And then you design primer where you really amplify your target to, uh, to thousands and millions of target molecules before you can detect it with PCR or, you know, sequencing methodologies. And, and this is a major bottleneck because uh, PCR is very complex. It requires, you know, um, specific lab facilities and, uh, in order for us to be able to, to amp- just amplify the target before we can even, even detect it. And uh, it's, it's a major, major limitation. That we try to but how many how many CRISPR molecules are needed to accomplish a given uh, a given break and repair? How do you know the ratio of how much is needed to the number of cells so to be affected? Those we test that those are all done with in vitro testing. So right now with with one thousand CRISPR molecule in our chip, we can we can detect you know easily genetic mutations that from DNA material that are, that are you know obtained with a single buccal swab. So if you if you have if you have a, a single swab and you take the, the genetic material out of that single swab and you put it on the DNA uh, on our CRISPR chip with 1,000 CRISPR on it, we can easily detect if uh, you know search those mutation and and detect those. Of course, for other type of diseases like infectious diseases where where the target material where the amount of DNA is not that much in the in the system. Then we need to, you know, we are trying to improve the the sensitivity of our platform to be able to also detect those without amplification. So the genetic material, when working with CRISPR, what what does it typically take? Millions of replicants, or you know, how much savings are you getting in terms of replication amount? So, so when you in a single buccal swab, you have about twenty to thirty thousand molecule of uh, uh, DNA molecule, and that's enough for us to be able to detect, provide a yes or no answer if you have that a specific target gene in the sample or not. You know, normally when you do in normal processes, you have to create millions and millions of that target in order for you to be able to detect it with optical techniques. Are there parts of your research that are now in clinical trials or how far along are you? Yeah, so perfect. A great question. So we, so the, the the CRISPR chip technology, we call them a CRISPR chipset. They're part of uh, the company I'm involved at called Cardia Bio. We're also we're actually working with partners for various different applications of our chip. So the um, the first application of our chip. It's actually not, you know, not detecting genes uh, for genetic diseases, but but using it for CRISPR, you know, quality control application. One of the major challenges with uh, with CRISPR technology is that, you know, we haven't been able to to effectively or or master the use of CRISPR. You know, it can we still have to assess CRISPR efficiency in using some sort of an in vitro method that are very lengthy, they're not very accurate. So there's a lot of effort on ensuring the um, the efficiency and and the efficacy of um, of CRISPR itself. So we have uh, many partners we we work with to to identify what which design, which CRISPR design it's best suited for their application. If they're doing editing, how much how much their editing has been successful? So before you move to to cell trial or to you know to in vivo studies, you can test for various different type of uh, CRISPR molecule and identify the ones that works best for your specific application. So this was the first application of our technology that that you know we we offer to the market and there is a it's a it's a commercial service that is available for that based on this technology, which we 
don't have to do any amplification of your uh, of your sample you just you know you edit your your cells and then you look and you monitor the editing efficiency before and after editing and and then you compare it across different type of uh, crispr and rna complexes and uh, you see which one is more efficient we're also doing a lot of genotyping for plants as well where you know you have people in the field where they want to you know to see if their their plant are modified or not modified and and they can also use crispr chip in the field to do those type of testing and other applications which um, which we work with our partners to to use the technology with and you know of course we have to improve the technology for um for you know infectious disease to be able to reach a point where we don't need amplification for for any of those applications why is there a amplification not needed is it like your microfluidics flow system on the chip that allows you to use a lot less material or like what are the factors that allow you not to have to amplify the material? So our, our chips, because of them, uh, as I mentioned, they're made from graphene. Graphene is very, very sensitive to charge molecule. That means if, uh, you know, if a charge molecule comes close to the graphene, it can change the conductivity of the material uh, significantly. And that can be detected easily with our system. So now imagine you have a CRISPR molecule sitting on your sensor and it interacts with, the, with, with your target DNA. If it binds to your target DNA, it brings the whole DNA down very close to your surface of the graphene. And because DNA is charged, it's a charged, negatively charged molecule, it impacts the, the conductivity of our material and therefore what the transistor is reading in terms of current and voltage. So, so basically we are, we are using the property of uh, biological molecules that are charged because the proteins are charged, DNA is charged, and, and this charged molecule can, can impact the, the graphene conductivity, and that we can sense very sensitively with our, with our chip. So now having a DNA molecule, a single DNA molecule, if you bring that down closer down to the, to the graphene, that can impact. So now, now we have 1,000 uh, CRISPR sitting on the, on, on the graphene, so that they potentially can bring 1,000 molecules down to the surface, and, and those change in charge can be detected. Okay, I see. So in, in most lab systems and then also in biological systems, there's, I guess there's so much going on, there's so much material moving around that the efficiency of CRISPR is just way lower, right? Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, people are not using really CRISPR for DNA searching. The majority of people are using CRISPR for editing, right, in cells. So we're, we're just combining basically the power of CRISPR in, in searching you know, because uh, CRISPR basically hops or scans the whole DNA to find its target. Whereas other other techniques where they detect DNA, they really have to have a probe specifically designed to that specific piece of DNA. That means that you have to create a lot of those pieces of target DNA to, to enable those interactions. Because if you if you don't create those small pieces of target DNA, then it's very those interactions are very you know, uh, difficult to, to, to really happen. You know, you have to have abundance of those target molecules for those interactions to be able to happen effectively. For us, we don't do that. We let CRISPR does what it does, you know, and, and we use, we're really using the power of uh, biology as technology rather than trying to reinvent the wheels. Okay. What do you think is going to be possible with your research and, and similar research over the next few years versus you know, what's going to take maybe a decade or two? So I think uh, when we designed the technology, we really were thinking about, you know, the genotyping capability of our technology, but then we didn't realize that 
know, throughout the process of, you know, putting the, the CRISPR molecule on the chip and introducing the RNA, we were actually creating a tool for quality control application. What does that mean? You know, a lot of time when people are using CRISPR technology for gene editing, they have to make sure that they have the right RNA molecule. They have to make sure that the, some, some modification that they do with the Cas enzyme or the RNA molecule is not impacting the complex. And the beauty of our technology is the, that you can, you can put the CRISPR on the chip, you know, then you can pass your RNA molecule, and then you can see how stable the interaction is, if they're binding, if there's anything impacted that. And then you can put your target DNA or target RNA based on what you're trying to do and really look at those interactions in, in real time and modify them. So what we didn't really notice that we were creating a perfect tool for, for CRISPR quality control application. So that's the first thing I see in future in terms of CRISPR. But, it, but is CRISPR the only thing that can be done with our sensor? Absolutely not. There is so many other biological molecules that have fundamental functions that we are able to capture those uh, those functionality on our chip and create really you know, and basically use, utilize biology as a technology on our, on our platform. Example of those, you know, you know, olfactory receptors, they can, they are very sensitive to small molecule and, you know, you can smell thing basically based on those. What if we put those on the chip, you know, you can create an electronic nose. And in fact, we have, you know, our company have signed a new contract with one of one partner where we are, you know, designing those biological, uh, those uh, electronic nose using this biological molecule. So another example of using biology as technology. And again, in general, because the capability of our transistor because they're fast, they can monitor a lot of biological interactions and, you know, and there is no label, there is no optical labels. You can, you can use them for monitoring protein-protein interaction, protein-RNA interaction, protein-DNA interaction. And, and a lot of this thing can be done by, by simply reconfiguring what you're putting on the chip. Whereas in status quo, like ways of things that are being done right now, the status quo for that is that basically you optically label everything and those labels can not be the same. You have to design and spend a lot of time on designing those labels. So the reconfigurability of our uh, technology and, and the way that we can scale it up for different applications, I think it opens door for, for many new uh, findings and, and exploration for biologists and in looking at these biological molecules and biological events. Well, very good. Kara, uh, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? If they want to, if you guys want to look at uh, our um, company, Kadia Bio, where we are, you know, commercializing basically a lot of, of these um, transistors based technology for interacting with biology. And also my lab at aronlab.org, where you also can learn about what other things we're doing, you know, using uh, electronic for biological application and biological understand, improving our biological understanding. Well, very good. Kara, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.